The Search for Delicious, page 94. Galen sat behind the boulder and frowned. Everywhere he went, it seemed Hemlock came after or had already been, weaving in and out of his path like an ill-intentioned wasp. He waited until the clang and echo of valley racks hoofbeats faded before he came out of the shadows. He wrapped the loop of the Morrow's, of Morrow's reins around a loose rock, gave the horse a pat of reassurance, and stole away to the tunnel to follow. Feeling his way, he crept into black darkness down a twisting corridor of cool, smooth stone. The corridor was dry and fragrant. It smelled surprisingly of apples, like the cellar of a well-kept farmhouse. After a while, it seemed to straighten out, and Galen could see a glow of light at the end. Voices reached his ears, and he hurried nearer to listen. I must talk to all of you right away, Hemlock's deep voice demanded. Can't, said a second strange voice. Bevel's down in the mind, and that wart went off to sleep. I'll talk to you for a few minutes, then I've got things to do. Lots of things to do. Very well, said Hemlock. Then listen, I've got to have a whistle, a new whistle, just like the old one, a whistle for the spring house in the lake. A whistle it is, said the strange voice. A ringing laugh echoed up the corridor. Well, my friend, the first whistle was very special. Bevel made it with a fine drill, and afterward the drill fell into the forge and melted. He could never make another whistle. Goodbye. Wait, cried Hemlock. Don't go. You've got to help me. It's extremely important. It's not all important to me, said the strange voice, and I've got things to do. Listen, said Hemlock. I know about the first whistle being lost. The wolf... The wall dweller told me, but if you made the first one, you can make another. Then I can open the door to the spring house, and when she goes in to get her doll, I can lock her in, only for a day or two until the last piece falls into place. Then the kingdom will be mine. I'll bring you apples, Pit Shaft, all the apples you want. Make me a new whistle. Go away, said the strange voice warily. Wait, cried Hemlock. All I want to do is make sure Artist doesn't interfere with the last step. I didn't want to start so soon. My plans were not complete, but this proclamation of the king's has set the stage too well. I can't let my chance slip by. The people will be, will be fighting any day, and the war will wear them down. And then I can... Chala, interrupted the strange voice. What do I care for your wars and kingdoms? We have things to do here, many things to do. Bevel couldn't make another whistle even if he wanted to, not without the drill, and the drill melted in the forge. I've given you enough of my time already. Then I'll have to take my chances, said Hemlock. His voice was low and cold. But if she interferes, it will be the worst for her. Nothing must go wrong. Go away, said the strange voice again. It's nothing to me, all, all this. People are so foolish. They waste their time. They waste their time even though they have so little of it. We have forever, and yet we never waste a moment. Go away and let me get back to my work. There was a sound of light footstep and heavy metal door clanged shut, and then there was silence. Galen turned and made his way rapidly up the tunnel. He could hear the hoofs of the gray horse ballywhack rack clattering behind him. He raced toward the cave and slipped behind the boulder just in time to quiet Marrow's nervous whinny. An instant later, Ballywack appeared with Hemlock stiff and angry in the saddle. They went out through the mouth of the cave. The hoofbeats mingled with the drip of rain and died away in the distance. Page 98. After Hemlock had disappeared, Galen sat in the window, in the shadows close to Marrow, and tried to piece together the things he heard in the tunnel. Artist, the doll, the lost whistle, and Hemlock's words. Nothing must go wrong now. Galen chewed on a thumbnail and frowned. Now how am I supposed to find out what he means to do, he said to himself. With a lame and shoeless horse, 
He was so lost in his puzzle that he didn't hear the footsteps padding up through the tunnel toward the cave. Then suddenly there was talking just beyond him on the other side of the boulder. Raining again. No mushrooms today. It was the same strange voice he heard in the tunnel. No mushrooms today, echoed a second higher voice. What a shame. Well, we've plenty of roots still. Hear the thunder. It's fine, said the first voice, just like the mines in the oldest day when we were all together. Galen peeped cautiously around the boulder and saw three small figures standing at the mouth of the cave. They were dressed simply in gray and brown and wore heavy leather belts at their waists. One had heard of short one had a head of short, tangled white hair. One's hair was yellow, and the other was completely bald. Suddenly, the white-haired figure put a hand on the bald one's arm and cried, Hist! Pitchshaft! What do I smell? Galen ducked down behind the boulder. It smell apples. I smell apples, Pitchshaft! Apples! Apples it is, the one called Pitchshaft answered. You're right, Bevel. No doubt they belong to that boy there, hiding behind that boulder with his horse. We'll go and speak to him. So they had known he was there all along. Galen stepped out from behind the boulder, feeling very foolish. He found himself looking into the ruddy faces of three small, sturdy men. Their gaze out of eyes gray slate was calm. Have you got apples, boy? asked Pitchshaft. Yes. Excuse me, I have a few in my saddlebag, answered Galen timidly. I didn't mean to be hiding. I came in to get out of the storm, and my horse has lost his shoe, and... It doesn't matter, said Pitchshaft. How many apples do you have? Three, I think. The white-haired bevel smiled. I would have guessed three exactly. The third man sniffed and nodded his yellow head but said nothing. What can we do for you, boy, in exchange for your apples? asked Pitchshaft. I'll give them to you gladly, Galen said. Fair exchange only, said Pitchshaft. Did you say your horse lost a shoe? Yes, and he's lame, too. Well, then, we'll make him a new shoe while he rests his leg. A day or two at most should do it, said Pitchaft. Bring your horse and your apples and come along. Off went the three, back down the tunnel, and Galen followed, wide-eyed and unresisting, leading the limping Morrow behind. The room at the end of the tunnel was bright with the glow of many torches, and at the center stood a large brazier in the red colds, in which red coals throbbed with heat. Next to the brazier was an anvil and a big stone crock of water, and there were a great many tools and scraps of metal lying about. The room was roughly oval in shape, and Galen, looking around, dropped Marrow's reins and gasped. The stone walls and ceilings were carved everywhere in low relief, carved so beautifully that Galen stood with his mouth hanging open in admiration. There were forest scenes where the leaves of exquisite trees frothed low all over all manner of animals busy among delicate weeds and grasses. There were underwater scenes with strange fish, tumbling waterfalls, and frondy plants on narrow stems. There were scenes which showed forges and mines far below the earth, and on the ceiling clouds sailed before the wind across a starry sky and graceful birds dipped and wheeled. In the wavering light of the torches, the whole tableau seemed to breathe with motion and life. Here and there about the walls, benches and tables had been hewn out, and there were a number of arches, each fitted with a heavy metal door. It was by far the most remarkable room Galen had ever seen. He turned round and round, trying to get a look of it all at once. As he turned, he caught the sight of what was surely the most amazing part of all. In a ledge opposite the entrance, a sort of basin had been carved. Over the basin curved the graceful body of a mermaid holding a water lily with fragile, pointed petals, and out of the center of the lily, in steady, measured rhythm, shining drops of water from some underground stream fell and splashed into the basin. "'Take your horse and go drink,' said Pitchaft. Galen drew Mara across the room, and while the horse dipped into the water, he stood gazing up at the carving of the mermaid." 
She was very young, with a round, lovely face, and the hand holding the water lily had curling, graceful fingers, and he saw that in the other hand she held a little doll made of jointed stones with a bit of trailing fern for hair. Fort carved her, said Pitshaft, pointing to the silent little man with yellow hair. He carved her long ago. She's artist. Page 104. Galen stared and stared at the mermaid. There seemed to be something marvelous hidden in the, in the carving that he was seeing, and yet not seeing, something extremely important. He bent to drink from the basin, straightened, and started again, but whatever it was that was hidden there eluded him. He turned away and saw that Bevel was blowing up the coals in the brazier with a large, with a large bellows, while pit shaft, tongs in hand, held a rod of iron into the licking flames. When the iron was white hot, Pitshaft laid it on the anvil and began to hammer. Bong, boinkity, ping, tap, bong, boinkity, ping, tap. The hammer danced and the hot iron began to flatten. Into the flames again and out, and again the hammer rang, and the iron curved like a reluctant snake. Over and over, heat, hammer, heat, hammer, and bit by bit a perfect horseshoe was formed. Then hiss! Pitshaft flung it into the crack of water. He turned and said abruptly, Time for supper. All three dwarves looked at Galen. He took the last three of the king's apples from his saddlebag and handed them around. Soup first, said Pitshaft. Some for the boy, too. Thwart went out through one of the arched doors and returned with a bubbling pot of four stone bowls. They all sat together at one of the carved tables and drank a strange but savory soup of tender roots in a salty broth. Then the three ate their apples, slowly and lovingly, stems, cores, and all. Afterward, Pitshaft went around the room and put out most of the torches, and then he disappeared through another of the arch doors. In a moment, he came back carrying a sort of flute. He sat down on a bench across the now-shattered room and began to play. The voice of the flute was rich and woody, and the tune was solemn. Bubble rose after a moment and began to dance, swaying and turning slowly and seriously, Fort took out a pipe and tobacco and smoked peacefully in the dimness. Galen sat wide-eyed. The carvings on the walls merged and trembled in the flickering light. From the quivering leaves of a tall tree, he saw the wrinkled face of a wall dweller peeping out at him, while above the basin the stone artist blinked happily and her scales sparkled. He looked from scene to scene, and a question occurred to him. Why are there no people in the carvings, he whispered to Thwart, who, was, who still sat smoking at the table. When the dwarf answered, his voice was low and dreamy. The waters belong to artists, the trees to the wold dwellers, the skies to the wind, and the mountains belong to us. But what belongs to the people, asked Galen. Smoke curled around the dwarf's quiet face. Nothing, he answered. Galen tried to think about this, but he was beginning to feel very fuzzy and peculiar. The fumes from Thwart's pipe filled his head like incense. The husky music of the flute, Bevel's weaving, sober figure, and the dappled, pulsing pictures on the walls seemed to blend and blur into a cone of sound and shadow. They began to revolve slowly before his eyes, to whirl and ebb and dim into a blackness. His head dropped down and the, on the table, and he was asleep. Galen half woke now and then only to sleep again. The trip of the water into the basin measured his streams, and sometimes he thought he heard the bong of the hammer on the anvil, but these would dissolve into visions of dripping forests and hollow clop of distant hoofbeats, and these in turn into the sobbing of the mermaid on the faraway bank. When at last he woke completely, he felt new and fresh. The chamber was brightly lit with fresh torches, but it was empty except for Morrow, who munched dry grasses 
someone had piled for him near the carved basin. Galen ran to the horse and hugged him round the neck. He stooped to examine the lame leg. It seemed quite strong again, and on the hoof was the bright new shoe. It was time to go. Galen looked around and wondered where the dwarfs had gone. He decided that he needn't wait to say goodbye. They had their apples, and Morrow had his shoe. He gathered up the horse's reins and started for the tunnel. Then he turned for a last look at the stone mermaid. Suddenly, as he gazed, he saw what it was that had eluded him before. Behind the mermaid's arching body was another, larger shape on which she seemed to hang, her finny tail and one graceful arm curving around it. The other shape was all at once piercingly familiar. It was exactly like the one that hung inside Galen's tunic, a gray stone key and there was a hole down through the middle. Exactly, now he saw for the first time, like a whistles, above the mermaid, nearly hidden in the twisting branches of a spindle tree, sat a family of crows. And as he stared in amazement, a rasping voice scratched across his memory, a voice that had called after him in the morning sun of another day. Whistles and keys, whistles and keys, goodbye. Galen rode Morrow up through the tunnel and out into the brilliance of the golden morning. His eyes squinted painfully after the dimness underground, but he was too, too stifled with excitement to notice. Here, then hanging under his jerkin, was perhaps the very whistle Hemlock had wanted Pitshaft to replace. The very whistle lost for hundreds of years. How in the world the minstrel's family had come to possess it, he could not even guess. He pulled it up out of his tunic and looked at it. Yes, there might have been, there might have once been a hole down through the middle, but now it was clogged with centuries of grit. Galen slid down from Morrow's back and broke a long, sharp thorn from a hawthorn tree. He sat on a rock and poked at the top of the key. A bit of the grit loosened. He shook it out and began to work in earnest poking and scraping. After a time, the heel was closed down, and he sat looking at his treasure in wonder. The minstrel had said it didn't open any doors, and yet somehow it must. Perhaps when it was blown, something magical happened. He put it to his lips and blew through the hole, but he could near hear nothing, only the whoosh of his own breath rushing out through the other end. He looked about, but the rocky landscape remained unchanged. No puffs of green smoke, no boulders turning by themselves in their ancient hollows. Still, if Hemlock was so anxious to find it, and if artists wept for it, it had to be very valuable. He would hurry through the pulling of the last two towns, he told himself, and then he would go to artists and give it back to her. He climbed into the saddle and nudged Morrow into a canter, his thoughts full of the wool-dweller, the dwarfs, and the mermaid he had yet to find. The country through which he jogged was slowly softening. Rocks on the hillsides began to give way to patchy grass, and the trees were fuller and more frequent. Galen heard bits heard birds nesting noisily in the branches, and once a fearful rabbit scalloped across his path. Then, as they rounded a shrubby hill hillock, Galen reined in hastily. A flock of lumpy sheep filled the way just ahead, buying hugely as they crowded across and up on the hillside. A boy of about Galen's age strolled beside them. When he saw Galen, he stopped and stared rudely. Hey there, called Galen. What's today? Well now, said the boy, furring his brow in mock concentration. Riddle so early in the morning. I know the answer, though. Today is the day tomorrow becomes, and yesterday used to be. He grinned wickedly. No, I meant, what weekday is it, said Galen, frowning a little. But it's not a weekday at all, said the boy, raising his eyebrows in a good imitation of surprise. I'd have called it a strong day with a sun like this. Look here, said Galen. I only meant, is it Sunday or Monday or what? Why didn't you say so then, said the boy. I could have told you right away it's Tuesday. 
Tuesday. Galen forgot his annoyance for, for the moment. Then he had slept three nights in Pitshaft's cave. Hemlock would be far ahead by now. Hey there, he said to the boy anxiously. Have you seen any strangers on horseback along here? Yes, said the boy. You. Galen swallowed his anger and tried again. Have you seen a man ride by on a big gray horse? He would have been wearing a cape. The boy scratched his head. No, he said at last. I'd have, I'd have remembered a thing like that. You don't often see a horse wearing a cape. Now look here, cried Galen. I'm the king's messenger, and I'm here on king's business. You're here on the king's horse, too, said the boy, and his eyes narrowed. I know who you are, and I know what you're doing. You can list my favorite food as mutton. I'm 13 years old, and I live a mile from here. My name is Decree, and someday I shall be prime minister. He threw back his head and laughed loudly. Tell that to the king if he's still king when this war is over. The war? asked Galen quickly. What do you know about the war? My father and all his friends have gone to fight, answered the boy. All of his enemies, too. We're squashies. They're crisps. Galen took out his notebook and wrote while the boy watched him. Then he asked, How long will it take me to get to the third town? A very long time, said the boy. A very long time, echoed Galen discouraged. Well, yes, of course, said the boy gleefully. Your horse is standing still. Galen gave a shout of rage and dug his heels into Marrow's sides. The horse sprang forward, vaulted neatly over the last few straggling sheep, and bounded down the road. Galen looked back over his shoulder and saw the shepherd boy grinning after him. He turned around again hastily, his cheeks flaming, and pressed Morrow hard till after an hour the rooftops of the third town shone in the distance.